Hi, everyone. This is Binod Shankar here with the Real Finance Mentor Podcast, the podcast that brings you insight and inspiration for your careers. And we have a special guest, as always, but this special guest doesn't come from a finance background or from an accounting uh, background as such. Uh, he comes from a very special background. I'm going to introduce you to Dr. Ian Stewart, who has had an enviously interesting and impactful career. Till recently, he was head of academy at the Public Investment Fund, one of the world's largest sovereign wealth funds with assets under management of approximately $620 billion. At EPIF, uh, Ian set up a physical learning environment, as well as put in place a professional learning curriculum of programs and courses. Prior to PIF, uh, Ian was Executive Director of Learning and Design at Kaplan Performance Academy, the first digital platform to host assessment, learning, and coaching in one place. Ian was responsible for the design and development of unique situational judgment assessments that measures both competence and confidence of respondents, providing a predictive measure of their potential. Sound fascinating. Now, since 2012, he has designed and delivered senior leadership and executive programs for a range of clients. Clients have been mostly, but not exclusively, from the financial services, including Legal and General, AON, Barclays, Royal Bank of Scotland, um, British Sugar, and the Financial Conduct Authority. Ian has worked with a range of populations from graduate inductions to board level interventions. His academic background means he has a robust understanding of the practice and is able to identify and apply the simplest, most effective and best value solutions. Now, this is why I said his background is interesting as well, because before moving to the private sector, Dr. Stewart spent a large chunk of his career learning his trade, as he says, in the academic departments of the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst, designing assessments and programs, teaching, studying, and developing a practical understanding of leadership and talent development. Now, at Sanders, he also established the Applied Behavioral Science Department, helping to accelerate the development of the Army leadership talent pool and giving them practical means and methods relevant to the new set of challenges they were facing on and off operations. In addition to his work at the Academy, he trained military officers and senior officials uh, from more than 20 countries, including Sierra Leone, the, uh, the Republic of Congo, uh, Ethiopia, Colombia, South Africa, Indonesia, as well as taught psychology for the Open University and acted as a visiting lecturer at Cass Business School. Ian's specializations and interests include leadership development, organizational diagnostics, problem solving and decision making, psychology of influence, and change and behavioral economics. Ian has a BA in honors, first class honors, a master's in, master's in linguistics, and a PhD in communication and influence. Welcome to the show, Ian. And that is quite a mouthful. Well, thank you. <laughs> I, I, I only wish my mother could have had it. She would have been so proud. Uh, she may not have recognized me, but she would have been very proud. But thank you so much, uh, Binod, for asking me on your podcast today. It's, uh, I know how well it's received. I know how popular it is. So I'm, I'm really glad to be with you again. Of course, the biggest challenge that I'm going to be facing is probably going to be your accent as, as it is. Um, but uh, let's see how you navigate or how the listeners navigate through the complexities of psychology and your accent as well in, in, in one go. Oh, it's, it's, sorry, <laughs> I didn't quite catch that. Uh, it must have been your perfect English accent. <laughs> I will try my best. I will, I will be on my Best behavior, I promise. And it'll be a, it'll be a very good uh, little little exercise for your listeners. So let, let's dive into the question, shall we? And the first one is, I have to ask this question because it's not every day that I interview someone who's not just taught at probably the world's premier military training institute and interacted with senior leaders from military, but also trained and coached senior leaders from top companies. So I have three questions here, Ian. Number one, what does it take to reach the highest echelons of the military? 
I think it's similar to what it takes to reach the higher echelons of more organized, most organizations. One is that you are absolute, you have that deep commitment and to developing yourself, having those professional skills, which are absolutely required. And, and those professional skills might, might fall into two categories. You have those, those skills which are technical, which are absolutely relevant to, to the profession that you're pursuing, but also that set of behavioural and human skills that's going to be required as you move through the organisation, being able to get on with others, to collaborate, to influence without authority and so on and so forth. But also, there's a couple of other things. One is how well that you develop your own personal reputation. Uh, I, I often hear and read on LinkedIn people talking about personal brand. Mm. I don't quite, I'm not entirely comfortable with that as a term, but I think the sense of personal repu reputation, what other people say about you when you're not around and, and that kind of shadow that you cast is incredibly, incredibly important. And then the third piece is, is being in the right place at the right time. And uh, at Santos, one of the pieces of advice we would always give to a young cadet is march to the sound of guns. And what's meant by that is not necessarily physically go towards where there is gunfire, but go to where interesting, exciting, relevant things are happening. Go towards these because they won't come to you. And if you go towards them, if you show up, interesting things will happen. As I think it was Woody Allen said that 90% of success in life was showing up. Uh, but you've got to be in the right place at the right time with the right skill set. So which brings me to my second question, Ian, which is how does the system in the armed forces identify and develop this top talent? It's an interesting system if you think about the military because you recruit all your top talent when they're 19, 20, 21, 22 years old and you grow the talent. You don't hire in generals or colonels later in their career. What you have at the beginning is the talent pool that you have to grow and develop. So the army does a few things, the military more generally. One is a great emphasis on training and development. Training, we get that, okay? Training programs, learn new skills, develop new knowledge and so on, but also this concept of development. And by development, I don't just mean getting better at something, though it should imply that. I mean putting yourself in unfamiliar and challenging situations. Now, the mm -hmm. military accelerate that by moving people in different posts so you may do an infantry role you may do a procurement role you might do a policy role you're you're being put in different environments where it might what, what is going to challenge you you're going to be in, in in a in a different environment and that's going to help you develop you're never going to see yourself the same way again and you won't see your organization in the same way again mm. Does that make sense? If, if somebody once said to me, if you want to develop, there's only two things that you can do. Either do different things or do things differently. Hmm. And the, the, the way the career progression works within the military is to encourage both of those. Do things differently, do different things. So, so which is, of course, neatly segues into my, my last piece for, of, this, of this question here, which is, what are the three different things or things done differently that companies, commercial organizations can learn from the military in terms of recruitment, development and reward? I think in terms of recruitment, it's very much about recruit, recruit with values in mind. It, 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 are the individuals that you're bringing into your organization, is there a good fit between their values the kind of the kind of professional lives that they want to lead, the kind of personal lives they want to lead, and the purpose of your organization. When you get that fit between people in an organization, I think I think that 
that that benefits both the organization and the individuals and militaries mm. spend a lot of time trying to make sure that fits right they don't always get it right but trying to make sure that fit is right i think that's one thing mm. i think again that training and development using training learning has got many many advantages but perhaps the main advantage for me is it connects people it connects your organization it puts people together and when you put people together great things interesting things happen so using learning as a way of enacting cultural change bringing people together binding your organization I, we always used to say that the teams that train together fight together, mm. you know, <laughs> learning to work with each other. So using learning uh, in, in that regard, perhaps, is, uh, is is something we could learn a bit more from the military. And then mm. the third piece is is we can reward people with, with more things than just money, you know. We, there's a lot of research, as you know, on the effects of 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 money. You know, we we can get people to do to act differently if we give them money. We you know, we salespeople will sell more if you mm. make the connection bigger, and you know, bankers will generally find a way of finding better investments if you make the bonuses more lucrative. The question is, are they the right sales? Are they the right investments? You know, mm. are the methods or do the means all do the means always match the ends that we that, that we we set out for them? So whilst monetary rewards are obviously essential, mm. what other ways can we reward people? Can we give them more autonomy? Can we give them more time? Can we give them more opportunities to develop and grow as as, as individuals? Mm. And that's not easy. It's not easy in a commercial organisation. I get that uh, mm. when you know there's there's work to be done and so on. But I think if you can you can leverage some of that, as as you see in lots of tech companies like Google, for instance. I mean, the classic Google example where they would give people a portion of the of, of their time to themselves. Mm. And of course, what they found was that. They spent that time doing things which then folded back into their, their working lives. So, and it, but again, Google tried to make sure they've got people whose values and, and personal ambitions also fit with the, the organization, you know, mm. to reference the earlier uh, answer I gave. Fascinating part I found about your answer was the reference to how learning is not just a tool for you know for, for for training someone but also how it connects people and binds the organization i found that i never thought of it that way but that's interesting way and 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 you, you ended the answer talking about values ian extremely important point which we will touch upon very soon but before going to values i want to talk about self-awareness hmm. because despite its criticality in every aspect of life why do so many people lack the amount of self-awareness required to ensure success, fulfillment, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? Why does that happen? The national poet of Scotland, Robert Burns, or as we pronounce him, Rabbi Burns, once wrote, "Oh, had some great poor, the gifty gears to see ourselves." is other seers. In other words, you know, if only we could see ourselves as other people see us. Now, why do we recoil from that sometimes? Why, why, why do we, why, why do we avoid some of those kind of home truths? I'm not sure. I think part of it might be ego defense that, that that we become very sensitive to criticism particularly as we get older and you know perhaps we're ambitious and we're competitive and so any anything that feels like it's a criticism we we fend off we find other ways of of of, of interpreting it so i think i think there's all sorts of as you know my, my background is social psychology i think there's all all sorts of situational factors here and one of the factors for me and this is a speculation is that I think in a lot of I think in a, in, a, in a lot of professional life there's a lot of anxiety 
People feel anxious about will they keep their job? Will they will they be promoted? You know, are they highly thought of? Will will they get the bonus they expect? There's a lots of anxiety, and I think when people are feeling anxious, that's not a great place to ask them to be very open up and and very self aware. I think I think the ego then sort of you know comes to comes to play and defends you. You know, no, mm-hmm. uh, no it's different for different people. But and as I say, I mean, it's my speculation. So I think we have to do something about getting people to feel more comfortable before we can move them on to self-awareness. Mm. It's interesting when I asked the same question to a senior, um, someone senior that I know well, his reply was not very dissimilar to yours, which is that most people in corporate and elsewhere are so obsessed with the outside world in terms of, you know, um, issues in terms of um, what do you call uh, anxieties and and regarding mm-hmm. regarding promotions and pay and competition and things like that, that they just don't have enough time to look inside. Um, so that sort of gels with your answer in a way as well. Yeah, and, I mean, yeah. it's time, but it's also, it's also the, the, the fear of that. It's the, it's the fear of criticism. Uh, I mean, I, I look over LinkedIn occasionally and I, I, I read some of the posts and the kind of veer between people humble bragging, you know, making mm. these little comments of, uh, and uh, to these rather hysterical sort of outbursts of how wonderful everything is and fantastic and 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 frankly most of them read like their cries for help <laughs> you know I, I i think this i think there's something in corporate life that we need to address there, there, there there's clearly lots of anxieties and people mm. who aren't comfortable in their skin and, mm. and and if people aren't comfortable in their skin, they don't feel secure, very difficult for them for, for us to ask them to be very open about their weaknesses or areas of development and so on. I, I get, you know, I, I just get that expression. And, and, and certainly working with, I've worked with some very successful people who are so sensitive to criticism. It's, it's, it's quite extraordinary. Mm. As I promised, we are going to loop back to values, Ian, um, something that you touched upon when you talked about recruitment in the army. Now, values are essential to navigate your way around life. Uh, you and I know that. Yeah. If you're a mid or senior level manager feeling stuck in your career, how do you find out what your values are? Uh, that's one thing. Does it come from experience? But that could mean a painful wait lasting decades. So what's the most efficient, effective way of finding out your values? Well, look, in, in another place, you and I could have a very long philosophical conversation about this, and I'm sure we will. But but for me, there's a very simple little exercise that I used to do with my with, with my cadets when I was at Santos, and I, I've subsequently done it with all sorts of people. And it's a very simple exercise. You, you, you take a group of people and you give them, say, a dozen little pieces of paper, and you ask them to put on those pieces of paper on each piece of paper, something that's really important to them or they would like to achieve or they'd like to have. So people put things like a big car, you know, or, you know, a, a holiday in the Caribbean or whatever it is. They can, I mean, you, have about, you have about a dozen of these. And and then you, you say, put it out in front of you. And then you say, of course, take four of those away. And then they take four of these 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 things away. And then, of course, you ask them to take another four and, and so on. And you gradually whittle it down. And I can tell you now that when you get to the final four, it's normally things like family, it's health, it's friendship, it's purpose, it's those sorts of those sorts mm. of things find are what are really at the core of what's important to us. Mm. And I used to to always say to the cadets, you know, take those four pieces of paper, put them inside your wallet and don't forget them, you know? And and when you're feeling a little down and a little detached and a little directionless, take out those four pieces of paper and just remind yourself what your true north is, you know? And, and if you're true north, there's a big house and a big car and lots of money and, you know, and a holiday in the Caribbean, that's fine. 
But you may find that your true north isn't those things, that your mm. true north is, is something rather more spiritual and more human and, 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 and less tangible. And I think that's a good, I think that's a nice little exercise, you know. And as I say, I'm not the philosopher, so I'll, I'll kind of leave it there. But I, I think it's a nice little exercise. And I would, I would encourage all your listeners to do it. It's, it's, it's quite surprising. And you have to, and you have to kind of dispense with the big fancy car and, and choose, you know, clean mm -hmm. living instead. Mm -hmm. Three. Now, this, of course, is is a very very important topic. It's a hotly debated topic, Ian, and I hope you can give us your informed views. What are the three most important traits about a leader? If possible, can can give that an order of importance, and why? Yeah, it's a, it's this is a it's a big topic, really, isn't it? You know, and you can you know, reams and reams of you know personality traits and behaviors and all the rest of it. I'm going to put I'm going to make it a bit simpler. You know, I used to teach at a military academy. We kept things. We tried to keep things relatively simple. I think the first thing is: Are they good team players? Mm. Without teams, there's no leaders. You have to be a team player. You have to know what it's like to be part of a team, to, to know how to operate in it, and to and, and to be able to stand up for the team as well. Because that's what leaders do. Leaders represent teams. So they need to have that connection. So I think being good team players, absolutely number one. One of the things we always did at the, the academy, for instance, with our new cadets, is we would spend the first probably six weeks just develop developing them as a team never mind leadership be a team you know take different roles in a team support it but, but be good team players i think that's trait number one and there are some people who just aren't team players and those those people don't make leaders hmm. they just you know and we've all met them i think you and i have met some particular ones that we could probably we could probably exchange names on so that's that that that's number one. Secondly, they need to know then how to build a team, how how to get the best out of people, and that's all about then those human characteristics of of understanding others, you know, being open to others, accepting others, being inclusive, understanding what different people bring to a team. And, ways, and again, not everyone is equipped to do that. Some people find that. Very straightforward. Other people seem to find it really, really difficult, particularly embracing the diversity that a team can offer you, which ironically is the strength of the team. The whole point of a team is having diverse talents, diverse knowledge, diverse experience, diverse uh, perspectives. So having that, that ability, that trait, if you like, of being able to build a team, I think that's really important. And then the final one, and for me, some way, I've gone the other way around, possibly the most important, is selflessness. Appreciating that leadership is about putting other people before you, because that's what the role is. The role is supporting and enabling others to give of their best. That's mm. what leadership is at its, at its absolute heart. At least it is in, in my formulation. Mm. Again, and I don't wish to be always harking back to, to, to Santos, mm. but Santos, I think, very neatly encapsulates this in its motto. Three words. Serve to lead. Mm. Serve to lead. Not, not lead to serve, but serve to lead. And that, for our cadets, was it was repeated to them, drummed into them, re-emphasized at every single turn. And we would look for it in even the simplest behaviors. So if they were in charge of a of, of a group in the field and it and it comes to lunchtime, who eats first? Mm. Is, it, is it the leader or is it the team? And, and and you would notice those guys and gals who made sure other people were were looked after before their needs were attended to. For me, that's 
that's hugely significant. And it makes an incredible impression on the team also. I think that's where leadership really is, if I was if I was really, you know, put in a corner. Well, I would have been kicked out of the army immediately because I would have always eaten first. <laughs> I, I've seen how much you eat as well, um, you know, so there, there wouldn't be anything left for anyone else. So I, 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 think that, I think little things like that are so important. And I, I, yeah. I mean, I've seen this in, in, in the commercial world when I, when I left Santos. I see senior people, you know, enjoying mm. all these wonderful luxuries as if they were somehow kind of entitled to all this. Mm. And, and 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 not doing that 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 basic thing of looking after their people, making sure their people are given treats and a little bit of luxury here and there. You know, we you know mm. with with great rank comes great privilege. I'm, yes. I'm not denying, but but I think sometimes uh, people f- forget uh, how these things are perceived. I, I remember working with one organisation, and we were all. I was travelling with them. I was a consultant. But I was travelling with them, and the more senior people, of course, turned t- turned left on the aircraft, mm. and the senior people went the other way. And just at that moment, you could just feel we're not all on. We're not all in the same team here, are we? Mm. There's one team up there, and there's another team down there. And I think I think moments like that can be can be quite powerful, you know. Mm. Talking about turning left or right when you enter an aircraft reminds me of my one of my last corporate positions where my boss claimed to be one of the boys and team members and cost cutting. And immediately after we boarded the aircraft, he turned left. And we all turned <laughs> we all turned we all we all obediently turned right. And post-flight, he's he humbly and and explained to us that you know the ticket had been bought already. So, you know, so we couldn't, you know, wait, uh, it would be a waste of time. Um, um, from a point of view, you know, um, but that's that's yeah. an interesting perspective. Talk, talking about leadership behaviors, Ian, um, I want to dig into this a little bit further because this is quite, quite an issue. We all know it's usually tough to change leadership behaviors thanks to the combined effect of extraordinary career success, lack of meaningful feedback to the leader, and a circle of psychophants in brackets, kiss asses surrounding the leader. Now, all this basically puts the leader in a bubble where he's insulated from any genuine feedback. And yeah. that prevents him or her from changing in any meaningful way. Now, what from your experience and our observation are the three factors that drive change at, in individuals at that level? Okay, I, th- I think three things for me might be, might be useful f- f- for for your listeners to think about. The first mm-hmm. is, don't see leadership as an individual pursuit. See leadership as a collective endeavor. Organization required leaderships, a, a, a bunch of people, a bunch of leaders who have this roughly the same value set, understand the organization in the same way, have the, have a similar sort of set of priorities, a leadership. We've got mm. lots of leaders in organizations. We don't have many leaderships. Mm. And, and I, I think that's number one. Think about it in, in a collective sense. We get we get obsessed by individuals. I mean, it's interesting, even in our conversation, I, I can imagine folks listening to this, if they can understand my Scottish accent, will, will, will probably be conceiving of particular individuals when we're talking about leaders, you know, leadership traits and so on, and, and imagining individuals. I'm trying to think of collectives. How do we how, how do we how do we make a collective endeavor? Because then you've got a peer group, a peer group who can who can challenge each other, who can who can who can police each other's behavior, who can take each other aside and say, hey, that's not how we do things here. That's not how we are. That's not our that, that's not our set of values. Mm-hmm. And and in some organizations you get that, but not many. We become obsessed by individuals, psychometric. Mm-hmm. We're obsessed by 
giving people psychometric tests. We must be the most psychometric generation that ever walked God's green earth. I don't know what the evidence is that it's done as any good. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are so many, you know, ENTJs walking around looking for an INT, whatever the other one is, to, you know, to meet up with. This this obsession with, with individualism, I think, is get, gets in the way of leadership. Mm. We talk about coaching. I think coaching is a fantastic thing. I think it's coaching is great. I think it works best if it's group coaching. Mm. Where you can actually, where the the, the 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 leaders can actually access each other as well as a as well as a coach, so their feeling is that they're working together and developing as a group, not just honing their kind of sort of super skills as sort of individuals, you know. Mm. Uh, so I think that's number that, that that that's that that's number one, the collective piece. The second is. Very old idea, develop the skills of followership. How do people become good followers? And good followers aren't just, as you say, sycophants, yes men and women who just go along. A good follower is someone who gives you, who becomes what we used to term in the, 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 the British civil service, a critical friend. Someone mm. who is on your side, but will challenge you. Say, hey, you know, is that really the best we can do? Could we use the resources differently? Have we made the right choices? You know, what's the evidence to suggest? You know, who's challenging you? That's what a good follower does, because good followers help you refine your decision making, your thinking, the leadership that you can bring to a group. So developing followership, really, really powerful. And remember, we're all followers. You know, Bob Dylan once said, you've got to serve someone. You know, at some point, you're serving someone. Unless, you, of course, you're, you know, hmm. actually Sunak, you know. And even then, you're, 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 I guess you're, 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 you're serving your electorate. So the, the, the skills of followership. And then the final thing is something more structural. It's about decision-making. Hmm. In all in organizations that I work with and, and for, I, I observe how decision making gets very quickly sort of focused in the hands or the brains of very few people. And that makes for exactly the kind of egotistical, non-challengeable leaders that that, 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 you're, that you're referring to. I think you need to think about decision making. How do you allocate decision rights? so that people are properly empowered mm -hmm. and accountable to make decisions. And, and again, there are, there are lessons from organizations we can learn about, uh, about how we do that. But I think you, you, you can't just change human behaviors. Mm -hmm. You've also got to change some of the structures. And I think one of the structures is how do we make decisions and, and, and how, do we, how do we give people those decision-making rights? Go into most organizations, as you do, and ask your colleague or your client, what decisions are you empowered to make? Mm. How do your decision rights begin and end? And most people, well, I'm not sure. I, um, and I think that's something that we could do. I, and we can learn from bureaucratic organisations like like mm. uh, like the civil service, for instance, you know, the civil service is very good at, at, at allocating. Hey, Ian, you can make these decisions. Beanod makes that decision, but you can recommend to Beanod, and and so on and so forth. So I think that's the third factor for me. Mm. Interesting. I was thinking of three points you made, right? Collective effort, mm. followership, and but the last one, which was actually more fascinating, because it, you're talking about the structure, the process. Mm. Uh, because as you said, many of them. I'm social psychology, being old. I'm always about <laughs> the environment, man. You know, we, if you don't, if you change the environment, you can change people's behavior. Mm. Yeah. And you can do that much. People's behavior, it's much harder for people's behavior to change an environment than it is for an environment to change people's behavior. Mm. Yeah. So mm. if you and I go to a pop concert tonight, yeah. 
don't worry, we won't. But if we did, we would both do the same sorts of things. We'd sit down, we'd cheer, we'd clap. We would behave appropriately to the environment. If we mm. then went to a mosque or we went to a synagogue or we went to a church, we'd behave appropriately to the environment. Organisations are just the same. And those environments aren't just physical. They're the, 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 the environment of practices and policies that we put in place. Mm. So shape those if we want to shape behaviours would be the vice from or my observation. Mm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think structures and processes are quite underplayed and, and, and not understood. And as a result, you have this huge concentration of authority and responsibility at, at the very top to the extremes yeah. where you see sometimes in organizations in certain parts of the world. And I think you know what I'm talking about, where mm. the chairman or CEO has to sign off if you need to buy stationery for the office. Absolutely. All the, all the way to building a plant or buying a car. So that's absurd. But that results in, I think, people feeling, how do you say, helpless or without the authority to make decisions. And that's that's not good for anyone to who's striving to get ahead or who is oh, no. half smart. No, no, completely, you know. I mean, we always say that the three big drivers of workplace motivation are a sense of achievement, you know, and, and recognition for your achievement, a sense of belonging to your, your team, your group, your organisation, your purpose, your professional identity, perhaps. But thirdly, the sense of control. You know, how much control do I have? Now, we all know we're getting paid to do a job, so we don't have 100% control, but... But we're also bringing our our labour, our expertise, our, our experience. So so we, we 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 kind of expect control over some aspects, you know. And and I think often in organisations that's kind of forgotten, and 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 we don't play up to that enough. Uh, I, I I think. And ironically, when people talk to me about the and they often do about the military, they say, of course, in the military, you know. Everyone just does what they're told and orders come from above, blah, blah, blah. Nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, you wouldn't last half an hour in a modern battlefield if you behaved like that. You have to be agile. You have to empower soldiers at the lowest possible rank to be able to make decisions which may save their lives. You know, you can't you can't wait for General Beanod to do, mm. sign a paper back in a chateau, you know, to, to come down the ranks before we can we, we can act. So there's a there's, we can learn from some of the uh, that kind of agility as, uh, as as well, but that's that's another conversation perhaps. But I think decision making mm. and the decision making environment is absolutely crucial here. Mm. I want to stay with this whole fascinating topic of leadership behaviors and one behavior I've seen in many professionals I know who are in their 30s and 40s Ian is clinging to a specific identity a specific story of who they are and these stories are like I'm like this or I never do this or I'm known for this or I should be doing this whatever this is and from my conversations my coaching conversations or other conversations I've had with people in that cohort, 30s and 40s, some of them are slowly realizing that this identity is probably not serving them well and it's actually holding them back from leadership positions. Yeah, yeah. Now, my question here, another, another conundrum for you to crack, uh, is how do you modify your identity to reach your ultimate goal? Well, you, you only ask the easy questions, don't you, Bernard? I mean, come on. I think there's a couple of things, and, and you know this better than I do, given the, the, the kind of coaching what you do, that how easy it is sometimes as the coach or the sort of quasi-therapist to sort of, you start to identify these these kind of derailers very very early on. These these sort of narratives that folks have created about themselves. Uh, you know the the classic one, and I I know many of your listeners are, 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 are you know of heritage in Pakistan or India and so on. And so you you may find this this a ludicrous sort of view. But in the United Kingdom, the number of people you will meet who will simply say. 
can't do numbers. I just don't do numbers. I, 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 I don't do numbers, you know. Now, I, I remember saying this to an Indian friend of mine, and she looked at me. She said, Ian, this is like, it's like someone saying, I don't do words, you know. It's, 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 it's like, you know, but people in Britain will they'll almost wear it as a badge mm. of honour. Mm. That they're that they that they're not good with finance, they're not good with numbers. And of course, folk, by constantly telling themselves this, they're as you say, they're they're closing off avenues. So I think there's a couple of things that that that, that are possible here. The first is working with someone like like you, frankly, or or, or a good mentor or just a good colleague mm. to act as that 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 mirror that that, that says, hey, look. You're saying things which just don't make any sense. You know, you're 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 holding back your ambition at, at step two. Uh, so you you need to mm. you know that that would be number one. The second is change the people you're with. Mm. You know, there's an old behavioral science sort of adage which is if you want somebody to get fat, hang around with fat people. If you want to get them to smoke. <laughs> Hang around with smokers. If you want them to get really fit, get them hanging around with really fit people. If you and so on, mm. you know, good role models. You know, working with other people, seeing what can be done, that makes an enormous difference. I, I, I believe, mm. and it gives people that 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 belief that actually, you know, if you know, Beyond can do it. I can do this, you know. And right. like, and I know, like you, you're like me, you know. I mean, you 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 spent a lot of time teaching, and often those golden moments you get in teaching is when you can see people say, "Hey, this isn't as hard as I thought mm. it was," or "Or it was hard, but now I've climbed Everest and I can see the top." And I think that kind of helping structure helps as well. So I say a good coach or but. Good coach, mentor, and, and and think about the professional circle and network you have. Expand it. You know, if you know, if you if you want to be great at finance stuff and really kind of soak it up, then you're going to have to hang out with finance guys. You know, I mean, I can't imagine anything worse being on, but I. I... <laughs> I was about to say that, but you took the words out of my mouth, Ian. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm told that I'm told accountants have a great time. Uh, yes. uh, although I, I, I don't know if I ever told you my accountant uh, actuary joke. So there's an accountant and there's an actuary, and uh, and they meet at a party. Uh, how can you tell which? How can you tell which one is the extrovert? He's looking at the other guy's shoes. <laughs> Yes. Think it's, it's a psychology joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, I'm sure we could go on for hours, perhaps even days and weeks, talking about so many topics, given that we have so many uh, topics that uh, sort of common topics to talk about so, from leadership or psychology, and especially my obsession with all things military and army, where, you know, we could talk, we could well, talk about wars and battles and generals and disasters and victories for and 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 that's probably we'll we'll sort of leave it for a later meeting uh when, when i am in that part of the world or you come down to the middle east so i'm going to have to ask you uh, a very important question which i always almost always ask um my guests uh from their experience of course which is what are your top three tips ian for anyone who is already at mid or senior management level and who's aspiring to leadership i mean they're not there yet they're probably in their late 30s early for mid 40s um and feeling stuck perhaps maybe the identity is holding them back like we talked about earlier but what would be your go-to recipe for success at that level I'm sure you get really good. Uh, actually, there's lots and lots and lots of very good answers. You get this from people from from different perspectives as mine. But I, I'll give you three. The first is listen more and better to the people that you aspire to lead. Because if you're going to lead these folks, find out more about them, listen to them. What's their hopes, their fears, their concerns, their interests? Because 
when you get the opportunity to lead, it's their interests that you will be representing. Remember, if you're leading to enable them, you're not leading just so that you get a bigger office or, you know, a, a fatter salary. That may come with it, but that's not what your purpose should be. So listen more and better. And by better, I mean really listen. Mm. You know, most of us are not very good at listening. I'm terrible at listening. I've been told this for, for so long now, I can't do anything about it. But l listening with real intent, I, I, I think is really important. So listen to them, mm. get to know them better. The second thing is work on stakeholder management. Get to know people in the organization, you know, work out how you can manage them because that's going to be a big part of your job as as you start to kind of get through the organization so again understanding other people what's important to them you know mm. how can i how could i serve them if i was if, if i was in a, in, in a more elevated position so i think that's that's really important and then the third part is work on your capability train for the future you know, mm. think about the capabilities you're going to require. And there's three things in here I would say. One is research what's happening in your sector, industry, market, customer base. What's going to happen? You know, you're looking out there. What what you call in the military deep battle? What's, mm. what's going to go on out there that's going to affect us maybe six months from now, maybe 18 months from now? But it, But it's coming. So you're getting ahead of this. Research it. And there's many ways you can do that, as, as we all know. So research it. Number two, find out how your business is planning now. We will look at annual reports or we look at statements of the organization's objectives and so on. And they sometimes make sense. They sometimes don't. Work hard to interpret them. Speak to the people who help draft them. How are they going to deal with what's happening? All you, what you're doing here is you're giving yourself that strategic, that more strategic view. You're starting to understand better how things connect, and people will start to notice. And then, at the next level down, think about your team, your function, your unit, your professional skill set. Where does it need to change in order, again, to be capable in the future? And again, you're thinking, well, what knowledge, what skills will people need? What will I need? What structural changes would this organization, as organization need? So you're, you're constantly planning and thinking of the future, like a little kind of strategic planning engine of your own. Mm. You start doing these things and you'll soon start to get noticed. But more importantly, when opportunity does knock, mm. You'll be ready to seize. You're you're ready to seize that opportunity. I hope and be prepared for it. You know you can step mm -hmm. in, uh, and and because it's one thing you know to aspire to some of these leadership positions, but you and I and I've seen many folks who found themselves in these positions and they're not prepared. Mm. They, they don't know what's coming. They don't really understand their organization. They certainly don't understand the people. They don't understand the environment, the wider uh, competitive environment, and they find themselves at, at sea very quickly. So mm. it's not just about preparing yourself for elevation. It's preparing yourself to be able to operate when you find yourself in that position. Reminds me of the Boy Scout motto, be prepared which I think aptly, aptly sort of captures the essence of what you said in the last point of identifying the capabilities for the future in mind. Um, and before that, you talked about, you know, listen more and better to the people. And second point was work hard on your stakeholder management. I think three very, very practical, I think very practical, very, uh, how do you say, strategic, um, strategic initiatives that anyone aspiring to leadership should think very seriously about um, and which they often don't. So, no, I, 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 I think so. And, and broadening that stakeholder base as well outside of whatever your functional area is, mm. you know, getting, getting to know people right across your organization. Uh, and, it, and it always pays off. It's incredible what, what you learn from them. And, uh, and, and it always pays off uh, mm. at some point. No, I can identify with that second point of working hard on stakeholder management because. I attribute some part of my success in some of the companies I've worked with to my 
to my ability to connect across departments, across divisions, across companies, where I was the face of my department. And that made a huge difference because everyone knew you and you knew everyone and you also knew what they wanted and what and what they wanted from you as well. So that that kind of, you know, um, managing, well, knowing your stakeholders and then managing expectations and connecting with them uh, at the strategic and tactical level can do wonders for your for your career profile and for the company as well, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And and, and I think the kind of way a lot of organizations are working now where mm. they're, they're either exclusively remote or mm. the hybrid situation, it's even more challenging sometimes to connect with people because we're doing it through screens and so on mm. but you've got to make that effort uh, that 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 social capital that you build up that's what you're investing in and that's what that's what will pay off because then when those names are on name box grids they'll say oh i know this guy you know i mean i i, I just was working in a in an hr department and 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 when they were looking at the strategic promotions there were conversations where people would say, Who, who's she? I don't know him. <laughs> you, you know, and they, and the other people would go, oh, I know old so-and-so. Well, that makes a huge difference, mm. you know? And for mm. me, if people don't know you, you shouldn't even be in that top quadrant, frankly, because you failed at one of the uh, primary tests, you know? Well, this is That's why I could never function in HR. I'd be too tough. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should have a separate podcast on HR, <laughs> and, and you and I would have a lot to to talk and 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 uh, yeah, raise issues about. I mean, this is a conversation that I've wanted to have with you for the longest time because although we did work in the same, shall we say, global organization, we never got the opportunity to work together, which uh, I always look upon as a missed opportunity. But I'm trying to make that up by interviewing you on 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 topics that fascinate both of us and hopefully uh, will prove to be fascinating for the listeners as well thank you so much dr ian stewart for for taking the time from a busy schedule and I, I know you've got a hectic life um, doing what you're doing right now and uh, and thank you once again for preparing and coming on the show um, and um, looking forward to uh, connecting with you when you're in this part of the world i know i don't know when that's going to be but whenever that is Oh, well, you can you can rest assured we certainly will. And I always, as you know, I always like uh, having discussions with you, whether it's long long WhatsApp discussions or or, or like this. So you know, it's great great to speak to you uh, like this. And uh, and thanks very much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Ian. This was brought to you by the Real Finance Mentor. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you found it insightful and inspirational. If you did enjoy this episode, please drop us a review and spread the word. And be sure to check out more exclusive content on therealfinancementor.com and my LinkedIn profile, which is Binot Shankar CFA. Let's keep in touch. Just add your name to the mailing list on therealfinancementor.com and we'll tell you about new episodes, plus book reviews, upcoming events and blogs. Till the next time, onwards and upwards.